was pretty intimidated coming up here to speak a sermon on something that I really don't know. I, I hear a little bit, but within my life, uh, don't really know and understand and grasp. And as I'm studying grace, looking up passages on grace, uh, Jesus says to Paul in 1 Corinthians that uh, my grace is made perfect in your weakness. And I was like, oh, okay. So my inadequacy on the topic of grace, God can then hopefully this morning bless you guys by infusing my weakness with his strength uh, so that we can learn about grace. So I'm excited to share. Um, it's good to see you all have your uh, eyes open. Shelby said, if I, if I start to get a little nervous, Shelby said I can just look over and she'll give me a thumbs up uh, every time, which is helpful. So if I look over to Shelby too much, that's because you're all not doing your job of encouraging me and extending grace, FYI. So the passage, uh, Tim had shared with me a few passages about grace uh, leading up to the sermon, and I thought, uh, what better place to look than the Gospels and the life of Jesus? So John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, uh, will be the main passage. It's a topical sermon, so it's going to be more topical on grace, but drawing, hopefully, uh, as best I can from this passage as well in John chapter 1. This is, uh, I believe, the TNIV. I thought I was studying from the NIV. They preach the ESV here. Some people said they're the KJV. So, you know, uh, all of these, these words. So this is the TNIV, I believe, right here, even though it says NIV. So John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I'm not going to hit on that part, but basically what's that saying? Grace upon grace uh, can be like a little confusing, that means the grace of the Old Testament was fulfilled in the grace of Christ. So, and then he goes on to say, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I think in the New Testament church, we can easily throw out the old and think that it's all about the new. Uh, but Jesus in the, or John in this passage is saying, we've received grace of Christ on top of the grace already seen in God in the Old Testament. He does not change Christ is just the fulfillment of that. So the sermon's not about that, but I just wanted to put that out there because a little bit of a confusing part. So typically when I'm uh, studying a topic or any sort of sermon, I like to cross-reference and look, okay, what are passages on grace? And then from those passages, what are other passages that cross-reference? I also really enjoy definitions. I'm a guy that really needs things. You can uh, test for this, Carrie. I need it explained clearly. Like when I go to the grocery store, if you say buy a lemon, I'm going to buy one lemon. I need quantity underneath if you want more. Uh, you got you to give me the specifics. Uh, it's just how I work. So with this understanding or this sermon on grace, I needed some definitions. I needed a little bit of help to better understand what grace was all about. Lay it out for me. Now the Sunday school definition, which we're all probably familiar with on grace— is, is what? So grace defined. What's the Sunday school definition that we all probably should know? Unmerited favor? Did I hear that? Is that all what you were thinking of saying, but you're just too shy to say it? 
We need another Jay Deering. Jay, where, come on, man. You got to help me out. You called it out right away last service. <laughs> Unmerited favor from God. Now, again, uh, if you're anything like me, repetitive definitions tend to lose their impact. Anything that I have experienced over and over and over again and becomes repetitive or mundane in my life loses its impact. Not saying that's not a beautiful and great definition of grace, but for me personally, it's just kind of lost its impact. It's just become a Sunday school from the brain answer. So to get a deeper, more wide understanding of the definition of grace, I looked elsewhere. Uh, My first stop was uh, this guy that, you know, theologian, philosopher, pastor, great thinker of our time, Tim Deering, said— Again, I was hoping that would get laughter because that means people really don't think highly of you. Uh, now, if I would have said Josh Bitework, they would have been like, yeah. But Tim, eh, he's got a lot of passion. <laughs> Waves his arms a lot. So Tim, uh, Tim said God, and this was amazing, through our conversation, just really hit me. Uh, God's extravagance towards his creation. Uh, in talking with Tim this week about this sermon on grace, I have always had this thought, and I've shared before in past sermons, that God could have done redemption any way that he wanted, but he chose the cross. And Tim's response, as he always does, um, you know, brought that so much deeper and said to me, you know what, no, God couldn't have done it any other way because God only does things extravagantly. He doesn't do things halfway. It's always extravagant, over the top, you know, as much as he can pour in. So God's extravagant grace, or God's extravagance towards his creation, I think is an amazing definition of grace. And we'll talk about that a lot more. Generous, free, and totally unexpected and undeserved. And then finally, I love this definition. Love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it. Nothing else. Just God desires us to have it not because of anything we have done to deserve it. Now, we live in a cause and effect culture. I do this correctly, and I get a reward. I don't do this correctly, and I get a punishment. In our household, Abby lives in a reality of cause and effect. And you can see it. When she does something wrong, she cringes. When she does something right, she's asking, where's my reward? Simple things in life. Daddy, I finished my bowl of cereal. Can I have a lollipop? No, it's 8.30 in the morning. You can't have a lollipop. Dad, I was nice to my brother. Can I have a lollipop? It's usually a lollipop. Can I have a lollipop? No, you can't have a lollipop just for doing what you should be doing. We order food from a, and we're like, oh, Abby, we're going to order a pizza. Oh, can you call McDonald's as well? Because I want a happy meal so I can get a prize. Everything is about reward. I was talking to another mom recently, and she goes, oh, is your daughter excited for Christmas? I said, no, actually, she just keeps talking about her birthday. Oh, when's her birthday? Is it coming up soon? No, it's not till May. But she just keeps talking about her birthday. Prizes, gifts, rewards, that's all that she can think about. But then there's those special moments when I'll catch Abby's eye and she'll be across the room, and I'm just overwhelmed with love for my daughter. And I'll look at her and she'll look at me and and I'll just say, come here. And she knows something good is coming. And I'll say to her, hey, you want a lollipop? She'll go, yeah, what did I do to get it? And I'll just say to her, nothing. I want to give it to you just because I love you. That overwhelming feeling of love and just saying, I want 
to bless you and make you happy just because I love you. And I am a sinful father. And the Bible says that even I, sinful father, can give good gifts to my children. How much more can God give to us? God does work, and you see it in the Bible, sowing and reaping, cause and effect, discipline, all of that sort of stuff. But I really believe it's just a fraction of how God interacts with us. His main posture, which is amazing, towards creation is one of grace. But many of us, we live in this reality of cause and effect. If I do something wrong, I'm going to get punished. If I do something right, I'm going to get rewarded. That's the reality we live in, and we place it on God. But his main posture, if we really stop to look at it towards us, is one of grace. Undeserved, extravagant, just because he loves us, grace. But for me, personally, I I have a really difficult time living in that. And to be honest with you, like I said, my understanding of grace is really insufficient and weak. And I'm so thankful that this was the topic that I got because God just opened up the floodgates this week, seeing his grace all around me. But for so long, and I'm sure I will continue to struggle with this, I just have a misunderstanding of grace. One of the reasons is because I think God's grace is insufficient. Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3 says this, Do you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Is Paul a prophet? Speaking of, uh, sometimes, are you so, it's pretty strong. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So it's one thing, you know, to believe, yes, Jesus Christ died for my sins, and therefore I have received eternal life. And we can believe that in our minds, but then the way that we live our lives is that we are in charge of our destiny. That we got to work hard, that we got to, you know, put our nose to the grind, that if we want to please God, if we want to live this righteous life before God, yes, the cross can save me, but I have so much work to do in sanctification. And that's not what the Bible teaches. This guy, Brennan Manning, says this, uh, and I think it's a great quote. He says, Our huffing and puffing to impress God, our scrambling for brownie points, our thrashing about trying to fix ourselves, while hiding our pettiness and wallowing in guilt, are nauseating to God, and are a flat-out denial of the gospel of grace. We think that it really lies on us. Maybe we wouldn't say that with our lips, but we believe that through our actions. We try really, really, really hard, and then we think we're doing well, and then pride comes before the fall. We fall short. And then we wallow in guilt and shame. How could I have done this? And then we say, okay, tomorrow it's going to be a different day. I'm going to change it. And then we try really, really, really hard again, and then we're doing well, and then pride comes before the fall. And then we say, January 1st, 2015, I got this. And then, you know, noon on January 21st, or I'm sorry, January 1st, 2015, we're like, okay, maybe 2016. We'll get it. It's this, let's try to impress God. Let's try to 
earn our righteousness. Let's work really, really, really hard. And I try that all of the time. And what keeps on happening is I constantly fall short. And my wife, as I was talking with her about this sermon, just said something that really blew my mind. She said, when I think about grace, it's freeing to know that God is so much more gracious towards me than I am towards myself. Isn't that so true? If we can see ourselves the way that God sees us, we would have a whole different perspective. If we could see others the way that God sees others, we would have a whole different perspective. It's so freeing to know, just to recognize we are weak, frail human beings. And as I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 2 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Recognizing that we don't have it all together, and that's when God's grace can come in and take over. Now, there is the danger in this thinking to then go the complete opposite direction, from insufficient grace to cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, which I actually just found out my dad was mentioning, he was 33 years old when he died. I'm 34. I mean, he really had so much more going than uh, I did in his relationship with God at such a young age. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, and it's such um, a great quote, I think. He says, In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. So again, it's the same issue as insufficient grace, but you're swinging in the other direction. And it's basically saying, yeah, Christ's cross can forgive my sins and get me into heaven, but it doesn't work in the everyday. And so the person with the insufficient grace is saying, okay, I got to do all of the work. But then on the side of cheap grace, it's saying, well, the cross did it, but it doesn't really work in my everyday life. So this is who I am, and this is how I'm always going to be. And you got to ask yourself, if Christ had the power to conquer the grave, how much more does he have the power for those things that are going on in our lives? But we have this gospel of cheap grace. We place it on ourselves, I know I do, and we also place it on others. That person will never change. And it weakens our interaction with them and our prayer life toward them and our expectation that our God can actually do something in our lives and the lives of others. Paul really says it well in Romans when he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? And you might see either side. That person really working hard because grace is insufficient, or that person that has given up because they don't think that God's grace can do any change in their lives. But John says that Jesus came in fullness of grace, which is what he's done on the cross, and truth, which is what that grace can do in our lives. If we truly believe it, if we experience it. But I think what happens with me, and I'm sure with many of you, is that we leave... uh, Um, grace is pretty much just a theology in our head. It's what we think about the topic. Or grace is, God's grace is really kind of molded and formed through human interaction. And we place qualities on God that we see in the everyday world. Because the world works this way and my interactions with people are like this, then God must be the same way. 
And if we're stuck in this sort of theological understanding of grace, we will never truly experience what God's grace really is. But John, which I love, he says, we have seen his glory. We have experienced the fullness of his grace. Here is a man that didn't get a second-hand account of Jesus. This is a man that sat with Jesus, that learned from Jesus, that broke bread with Jesus, that fellowshiped with Jesus, had an intimate, dynamic, living, breathing relationship with the Son of God. And typically, if you hang out with me long enough, your perspective of me will actually go down. Right? I may give off, maybe I'm wrong, and I don't give off a really good impression to people, but you know, you say, oh, Mike, he's a good guy, you know, all of this sort of stuff. But then you talk with Carrie, and you realize, you know, what I'm really like when the pressure's on, when I'm anxious, when I'm running late. You don't want to even be around me when I'm running late. I'm terrible. The longer you hang out with somebody, the more you recognize their sin, their deficiencies, their shortcomings, and the less usually you'll think of them. But with John interacting with Jesus— the more time spent with Jesus, the higher he raised up. And the same is true with us. Like we, The veil has been torn, which has been talked about here over and over again. We can enter in the Holy of Holies with confidence. And the only way that we're going to understand the grace of God is through interacting with Jesus. So that we can say, like John, I have seen his glory the glory of the one and only. If I'm viewing God through the lens of the world, it is going to be so far short of what God really is. But if I can experience God through interaction with Jesus, we, like John, will be able to say, I have seen his glory. The fullness, basically what that's saying is you have this big tub of water and, here, and it's filled up with grace and then Jesus comes and just pours grace upon grace that it's just flooding the room. It cannot be contained. And that's what we get through Jesus. But we get stuck in insufficient grace, cheap grace. Another Bonhoeffer quote, which uh, really just impacts me greatly. He talks about this cheap grace that so many people live in, just saying, oh, Christ died for my sins, but I'm just going to continue to live this life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again. The gift, which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I'll fall on both of those sides of insufficient grace and cheap grace. Typically, insufficient grace, before I've sinned, then I've sinned, and then I go to cheap grace, and oh, God forgave me. 
and then I go back, and it's this, this cyclical thing. But true grace can only be found through an interaction with the divine. And this week, as I've been, you know, just thinking about grace, it has been on my mind 24-7 for the past week. Yes, I did delay a little bit in my sermon prep, but at least the past week, I have experienced God's grace. And I see it all around me. The other day, I was sipping coffee, looking out um, at my woods, and this breeze, this just gentle breeze came by and just swayed the trees. And I saw grace. This morning, I woke up before the sunset. The sunrise is in the morning. I woke up before the sunrise, and there was just these beautiful colors interacting with the trees and the clouds, and it just was so pleasurable to my eyes and my senses, and all I thought of was grace. God, you didn't have to do it this way, but you chose to because you're extravagant. Yesterday, we had Morby Christmas. Um, I actually woke up, and most of the family was still sleeping at my house, and Prepping for Morby Christmas, I went to the giant. And as I'm going through the giant with grace on my mind, I'm looking just at the plethora of food. And if I take these, which I'm terrible at, but if I take these foods and combine them in different ways, then I get great tastes and flavors and recipes and dishes and all of this sort of stuff. If God wanted to, he could have just given us manna from start to finish of our life. But through his grace, he said, here, I'm going to be extravagant. So many ways through interaction with my family. Like, I don't deserve my kids and my wife. I don't deserve that. That is the one relationship that I know, thankfully, is is a rock and steady beyond a doubt. It's my comfort. It's my refuge. God did not have to do that for me, but it's his grace. When I first became a believer, I was 20 years old. So only 14 years ago. And one thing I used to do when I came home I was just so filled with God. I, had, I knew like two Bible verses, and I would quote them all of the time. Um, one was, better a millstone hung around your neck than, you know, you lead one of these children astray. And I would quote that for everything. And then I realized, oh, there's more verses to the Bible that are more applicable. But I had this like overwhelming passion for God. And I would come home, and I would shut my car door, and I would go and lay in the grass of my parents' house and just look up at the stars on a clear night and just be overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty of God. And it's extravagant. Check out these photos. It's not that great on the projector, but you've probably seen them. This is created by our God. It was created by our God. It's extravagant. I can't wait to, uh, I hope, one of my dreams is that heaven will be me, like, flying through all this stuff, like Superman. I hope that's really the truth, because I'm just, like, obsessed with the way this stuff looks. As a creative person, I just was like, but I just look at this, and the only thing I can think of is just extravagance. It's amazing. Who knows? And I don't believe there is, but who knows if there's life elsewhere? I don't believe there is. I believe it was just God saying, look at what I can do, yet I still care intimately about you. And the psalmist, looking up at the heavens, and and the psalmist had an incomplete knowledge of what this was really all about, and we still do. Yet he says in Psalm 8, and just look up at this photo while I read this. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars— 
which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. God is extravagant towards us. If you just look around, take a moment to pause in the craziness of your everyday and just look around, you will see the grace of God in an overwhelming and majestic way. It's just, it's crazy the amount of grace that I saw this week. As I just, I, I breathe in and out, it's grace. I can stand here before you, it's grace. And God, even, you know, in pain, you can see his grace. It doesn't have to be health and abundance. He is with us, constantly saying, I love you. And that love is extravagant, undeserved, just because I love you, love. But we need to see it. We need to experience it. We need to be with the Son of God to really, really know it. And the greatest demonstration that God ever did in showing his grace was sending his son to be born. Back in John chapter 1 again, verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Again, something that's repetitive can lose impact. And unfortunately, I think the cross loses its impact. In a way, it's become a symbol of pop culture. You know, we, and I, I love this cross, and there's such depth and meaning, but th- there's a cross in the church. There's a cross around your neck. There's a cross in your car. You know, rap videos, they're showing off their cross as they're going like this. It's just, it's everywhere. And it's become a part of pop culture. But if we really sit again and we stop and we pause and we think about it, Jesus Christ came from his heaven, and we, we can't wrap our mind around this. No matter how many words I say about it, it's, it's so impossible to wrap our minds around it. But just think for a second that God, sitting on his heavenly throne, descended and took on flesh. He put himself in humanity. He made himself susceptible to our frailty, to our weakness, to our pain, to hunger, to thirst, to rejection. He made himself susceptible to all of that stuff. Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. I believe if you put together all of the trials and temptations and struggles of everybody in this room, and you combine them together, it doesn't even come close to what Christ experienced while he walked this earth. Not only did he just put on flesh, but he took on all of the sin and depravity of humanity with the devil nipping at his heels along the way. Yet, he did not sin. So not only did he take on flesh, but at the same time, he put himself in the lowest position of humanity. Philippians says this, who, talking about Jesus, being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. How many of us use 
things we've been given to our own advantage all of the time. Be like, I'm the son of God. Whoop, check this out. You know, if I was that, it would be a mess. But Jesus Christ, being who he was, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Jesus Christ, who is everything, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the creator, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Is that not extravagant grace or what? Again, we've heard it. But are we experiencing it? Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He couldn't have done it any other way because he wanted to do it the most extravagant way possible. There's an artist uh, named Ray Le Montaigne, if you're familiar with him, and in one of his songs he says, I would walk a mile on broken glass just to fall down at your feet. Basically what he's saying is, I would go through that much pain just to show you how much I love you. Jesus Christ did the same exact thing for us. He wanted to say, in all of your frailty, all of your humanity, all your inadequacy, all of your sin, in all of that stuff, I still want to extend my overwhelming extravagant grace to you. The shame of the cross. Again, it's become a symbol of pop culture. But in that time, it was a symbol of humility, a symbol of torture, of pain, John Piper puts the shame of the cross this way. He says, shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. His glorious dignity gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching. Extravagant, undeserved, just because he loves us, grace. God Almighty came down. He put on flesh. He walked among us. And our response to that, and I say us, because we can't look at the Pharisees, and we can't look at the Romans, and we can't look at that time and say, it would have been different if I was there. It's not true. I say us. The way that we treated him and the way that we treat him today is through crucifixion. Through saying the most glorious treasure and jewel ever imaginable came and walked this earth and how are we going to repay you? We're going to put you on a cross. A shameful, humiliating, degrading, as you sit there grunting and groaning and naked as people mock you, cross That's where we're going to put the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the Bible says that he put himself there. Yes, we played a part of it, but it was his choice because he loves us. And he wanted to go the most extravagant way possible to show it. So that every time we think about it, every time we remember it, every time we break bread and drink wine, we remember the cross. And that God's grace is grand, and it's there for us to have. We just need to stop, and we need to think about it, and we need to experience it. Cause and effect. 
you know, all of that sort of stuff, sowing and reaping, is this portion, I believe, of how God interacts with us, and grace is all of the rest. It's not insufficient, and it's not cheap. It's there for us. And the outflow of that in our lives is so transformative. If we mentally think about grace, we will go about our every day as we normally do. But if we experience grace in interaction through the sun, man, we'll become different. The Bible talks about a few ways that grace is expressed when we walk in righteousness rather than trying to just achieve righteousness. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says, All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. When we get this understanding, even if it's just a tiny understanding of the grace of God, the outflow, like can't contain overflow, is thankfulness. Because we realize you have done so much for me. And we, we don't go along grumbling about what we don't have and what we want and what we didn't get. We'll just say, God, you have given me way more than I deserve. And then we just overflow with thankfulness. Joy and generosity, 2 Corinthians 8.2 says, In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't that Amazing that extreme poverty and rich generosity are coupled together there. They had nothing, yet they overwhelmed with rich generosity because of the grace of God. And now a really big one is humility. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we make a theological ascent to God, pride slips in. You know, when we sit back and, you know, we look at Josh's PowerPoint or Tim's PowerPoint and there's a misspelled word and we're like, oh, he's a pastor. He should, you know, check his slides more. You know, whatever it may be. You know, oh, I have a better understanding of this theological concept than, you know, this other person. Or I have something to offer because I've reached this point in my walk that this other person hasn't. That's pride. That's a theological assent to God. Wayne Grudem, in Systematic Theology, in the introduction says, be careful that this reading of this book doesn't cause pride because the more you know about theology, the easier it is to become prideful. But here... James is saying, no, when you experience the grace of God, the response is not pride, it's humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And just so you know, you don't have misspellings in your slides. You guys do a phenomenal job. I probably have some, but. And then lastly, Colossians 4, 6 says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. This week, as I'm experiencing grace and seeing grace all around me, man, the power of the tongue in speech can just cut. And it was so easy for me to just be experienced the grace of God and then get back into, you know, humanity and respond in that sort of way through the way that I spoke to whomever it was. 
But when we experience the grace of God, our conversation becomes full of grace, seasoned with salt. You know those people that you talk to and you just feel no judgment whatsoever? And there's just such a comfort level? I bet you that's exactly what it was like interacting with Christ. Yeah, he was God in the flesh, and he could see into the hearts of men more than anybody could ever see. Yet, by droves, they flocked to him. Because I believe it was just grace pouring out of him. So in closing, just this week, this day, I just want to encourage us, let's pause. And whatever you're doing, all of the little things. Another, another thing was I was cooking bacon. And I was just like, that is the grace of God. It's amazing. And then I turned away and burnt the bacon, and I said, away with you, Satan. But um, no, that didn't happen. That was a lie. (laughs) But it is amazing. And I know I just scratched the surface this week. But the joy and gratitude that I felt in my life this week, just seeing God's grace all around me, was amazing. And I really hope that now that the sermon is over, that I don't just fall back into the old cycle. I hope that I continue to practice the discipline of seeing God's grace all around me because it's everywhere. And I want to encourage us this week to do the same and focus on the cross as well because that is the greatest act of grace that God has ever displayed. Grace is love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it not because of anything we have done to deserve it. And as Paul always says in his letters, I pray grace and peace be with us this week. Let's pray. Lord, let us not leave these doors with a head knowledge of grace. And in studying, Lord, grace is used in so many ways throughout the scripture that even this short sermon is only a drop in the bucket of what grace is all about. Lord, but I pray this week and for me and for everybody that we won't just want to learn about grace, Lord, but you will give us the ability to see your grace. And the funny thing is, it's only through your grace that we can do that. Lord, so let's put aside striving Let's put aside effort. Let's put aside throwing our hands up and saying this is the way it's always been and will always be. And let us just abandon ourselves into your grace, your ocean of grace, and just let you take us because that is where we will see change. And it's not because of some effort or something that we've done. It's just because when we experience you and when we see people in the scriptures truly having an interaction with Jesus Christ, their lives were changed. Jesus didn't say, your sins are forgiven, now continue living in it. He said, your sins are forgiven, now go sin no more. And it wasn't through their effort that they were able to sin no more. It was because they experienced the tangible flesh and blood grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I pray the same for us. You are there You tell us to approach with confidence, so give us the desire and the ability and the power to do so. Amen.